Expand and impact. Internal transformation for external impact. Achieve your goals without sacrificing yourself. I'm Violetta Znarkowski, but you can call me Violet. Welcome back to another episode of the Expand and Impact podcast. This is a space where we discuss how you can create a successful life that is an authentic expression of you. And we also explore the intersection between personal development and gender equity. Today, I'm inviting you to listen in on a conversation I had with Tess Swearsmith. The conversation is all about money, investing, and how important it is for women to take control of their financial futures with more intention and attention. Tess is the founder of Wealth with Tess, a financial education platform which aims to help professional women and entrepreneurs build their wealth and confidence using simple investing strategies that anyone can do, even if they're short on time or a total beginner. After a big investing mistake that cost her over $80,000, Tess learned the basics of investing and realized that it's not nearly as complicated as it's made out to be. Tess believes anyone can learn how to invest and is committed to helping as many women as possible take control of their finances. This conversation took many unexpected turns, but arrived exactly where it was meant to, kind of like life. Aside from investing, in this episode, you'll also hear about what the media teaches women to believe about their capabilities around money and investing, how your money mindset is influenced by your upbringing and can be inherited through your lineage, how grief can cause us to act in ways that people don't understand, shame around money, how to overcome fear when it comes to making brave decisions in your career, your business, your money, and your life. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did, and if you love what you hear today in just a moment, definitely send us a message on Instagram or tag us in your stories, telling us what you loved, how it landed for you, because hearing from you really reminds us why we are doing what we're doing, especially in those moments when life is feeling a bit hard and uncertain, like we all experience. So we can't wait to hear from you. And without further ado, here we go. What informs your identity? This is an interesting question because actually over the break, I just spent some time going through my core values and something that I've done for a long time now at the influence of an amazing leader that I know at um, my company is to define my core values. And your core values are really who you are and and more in essence, what drives your decision-making. So for me, some of my core values are directly related to how I want to live my life and who I think I am as a person. So I used to define myself in very tactical ways, like I'm an athlete, I'm an adventurer, I'm a money coach, whatever it is. And I don't like that anymore because I've changed so much in my life and I've done so many different things. And now I just like the themes of my life. Who am I? And so to answer your question of what informs my identity now, it's really these core values. And so one of them is 
choose simplicity. I'm always trying to find a way to make things simple because for me personally, that's enjoyable. I don't love complexity. I don't love chaos. So I like to keep things simple. That said, I also believe that everything is figure outable, even if it is confusing. So everything is figure outable is also one of my core values in that no matter what the problem is, there is a way to solve it or someone that knows how to solve it or a resource that can help you. And so those are the kinds of decisions and the kinds of ways that I live my life is by identifying what my core values are and then making decisions. So if I'm, let's say I'm taking a trip, for example, if it ends up being really complicated with trains, planes, and automobiles, that is going to be less enjoyable for me because I like to keep things simple and that's okay. And I used to feel like pressure to just be cool with whatever. And I just like things to be simple and straightforward a lot of the times. And that's how I approach my money coaching business. And that's how I try to approach my life because I have so much going on. So those are some examples of my core values. Another one is be grateful, which is pretty obvious. But yeah, I would say that those values really inform my identity and then I use them to make decisions. And when I make decisions that aren't in alignment with those values, I feel it right away. It doesn't feel right to me. So I would say that the core values do. That's awesome. That sounds to me like you've been really on a deep journey with getting to know yourself better and really honing in on what's yours in terms of your values and what you want to bring into your life and how you want to live versus the values that a lot of us are taught. And then later in life, realize that actually they're not in alignment with what I want or who I am. And there's definitely even reflecting on like the clients that I work with, there's a misconception with what values are. A lot of people do attribute values like I am focused on success or like certain, I guess, like material components, but actually it's more about the underlying layers of what drives your decisions. And that's really, really amazing to hear. And I can see it like infiltrating in your work and the way you present yourself online and the conversations that we've had behind the scenes before this recording right now. Um, I do. I just thought of another question and I'm wondering if I can ask it. Sure. Yeah. What's your cultural identity or like your culture, your background? Sure. So I am half Puerto Rican, half question mark. My mother was adopted. My father was from Puerto Rico. So I was born in the States and I haven't had as much of a tie to Puerto Rico as I would have liked to, but I am actually taking Spanish lessons right now because I find my Spanish Yay. a little bit embarrassing. And as I've gotten older, I felt more of a connection to my Latin culture and I want to learn more about that and, and get in touch with my heritage. So taking Spanish is one of them. And then I am actually going to spend some time in Puerto Rico probably next month. And I haven't really done that a lot. So I'm excited to do that. And has that influenced in any way your core values, the ones that you just spoke about? And is there an overlap between what you value now and what was ingrained in you? Or did you kind of pave your own path and refigure everything out as you went along? That's an interesting question. I don't think it necessarily correlates with my heritage in any way. I do think that some of my core values are in direct opposition of my parents. Uh, so I don't have a close relationship with my father and my mother is a great woman, but has had a lot of challenges in her life. And one of my core values is challenge drives change. And to me, it's really important to continue to challenge yourself and push yourself out of your comfort zone 
so that you can grow. And so while I like simplicity, as I mentioned earlier, I also love challenge. And those two things can exist in the same sphere. And so one thing that I think is interesting as I look at my core values, a lot of them are things that I don't like in other, like qualities that bother me in other people. And quite honestly, some of those qualities are demonstrated in my parents. So I don't have a super close relationship with them. And I think it's interesting that when I thought about that, one of the ways that you can test your core values is to say, is the opposite of this core value something that really bothers me when I see it in other people? Like, or am I triggered by this? And I'm triggered when I feel like people aren't grateful. And so, you know, that's like a good measure of if that's something that's really important to you. That's not to say that if that's not one of your core values, that's wrong. Everybody has their own set of individual core values that's right for them and fits for them. That's just what I identified works for me. So I wouldn't say heritage necessarily influenced, but definitely influenced by things that I saw that I didn't want to be. Yeah, I can. I could absolutely relate to that. My background is um, I'm Polish American, so both of my parents immigrated from Poland. So I'm a first generation in the U.S. I was born there. Me and my brother were both born there. The first ones in our family, and a lot of my core values today are, I guess, like the next level of the challenges that they experienced and really connecting with the opportunities that they didn't have. So we have very different mindsets and approaches to life. And it's not directly, like, I guess, ingrained in my upbringing, which is why I value it. But like you said, like in opposition, the things that I noticed could be better, could work better, or can be even adapted to the way life is now and the way I grew up as opposed to what they inherited or what I inherited from them. So that's really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. And I'd love to ask you to share some of your story because you're doing such incredible and important work and you have such a unique story from like the little that I know about you. And I'm so excited to chat to you about it and share your story with our listeners. But you are the founder of Wealth with Tess and you run the Money Confident program, which teaches women how to invest really simply right? But you also have a corporate job. You also travel a lot. You do all of these things. Like I can tell your identity is really diversified. And I'd love to know a little bit how you got here today and where you were, a little bit about your story, whatever comes to mind. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you. I like diversified identity. That's a cool phrase. So when I, I graduated into a recession, actually. And when I graduated, I couldn't find a job that I wanted. And I thought I wanted to work for a Fortune 500 company, I wanted to work for Nike or some athletic brand that anyone's heard of. And I applied for so many jobs and I got rejected from every single one. And I had- Congratulations. Been... <laughs> Thank you. <I'm> <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. So after getting rejected from every single job that I applied for, my I, I had been a springboard diver my whole life. I dove at the national level for the US and then I, I was dove. wondering. Yeah. I thought I was like I either a gymnast or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was a gymnast before awesome. I turned into a diver. So then I was <clears throat> very, very fortunate to receive a full scholarship to school in diving. And then when I graduated, I retired. I was done with it. I really wanted to make the Olympics. That was like out the window. So I retired. I was done with it. And then my old diving coach calls me and he said, hey, I heard you don't have a job. And I was like, thank you. And he <laughs> Thanks said, for reminding me. Thank you. That's great. Yes, I'm still at the bar. And he <laughs> asked if I wanted to go on cruise ships and perform in an aqua show on cruise ships, like a Cirque du Soleil type deal. 
And I said, absolutely not. I just got a, a degree. I'm a big deal now. I'm not going to do that job. That's beneath me because back then I had a little bit of an ego. And after a few more months of not finding a job, I called him back and I said, hey, is that job still available? So I ended up working on cruise ships for almost four years, mostly as an aerial acrobat. And that story is actually relevant because weirdly enough, that job, first of all, was amazing in terms of getting a chance to travel, realizing how much more important it is to be around people that you enjoy working with, how it's not, not as important to find that Fortune 500 job. Like I didn't want that. By the time I was done, I was just like, oh, I'm so glad that that didn't happen to me because I had this such a cool experience. I met people from all over the world. And financially, it was a gift because I had no expenses. I made a decent salary, but was more valuable than that was I had, you know, no rent, no food, everything was paid for. And I got hazard pay because the show was a little dangerous. So I ended up leaving cruise ships with a decent amount of money to invest. And that's when I realized that I needed to find someone to help me because surely I am not smart enough to learn how to invest on my own. And that's what I thought at the time anyway, that you had to find an expert to help you do it because the average person is just not qualified. It's too complicated. That is a myth. And we'll talk about that later. But I found a financial advisor, ended up getting jobs on land or quote unquote real jobs. Um, I've now worked for the same amazing company for seven years in marketing and it's been great. But I had this financial advisor that was helping me with my money for several years. And at some point, I started to have more questions about how it was being managed. And then well, this will get into the question about this that story. So I don't know if you want to stop there and <laughs> we can circle back. But anyway, that was like the origin of how I ended up having money to invest. And my first step was hiring a financial advisor and then that didn't go well. So that's kind of my origin story of how we got here. Two questions on that. Well, one's more of like a acknowledgement and the second one's a question. So I want to tell you a little secret because I know the listeners, I love that you brought up um, that you had a bit of an ego coming out of school because I think most driven people do. And I can identify that within myself too. And it's almost like this interesting awakening happens when you finally come to terms with like how that ego is both limiting you and driving you for more. And once you can separate yourself from it, you see a clear path on what choices you need to make to actually create the life that you want to be living instead of the one that we're taught to live. And I just wanted to acknowledge that because even with some of my clients, they like identify that they have this like strong ego about them. And that's not a bad thing. And it's almost comical because we all do. And we all have like a bit of a chip on our shoulder. And once we get past it, like life is great, but it definitely drives us to go in the direction that we're going and can hold us back. So I just wanted to acknowledge that and thought it was great that you mentioned it because to me that shows one vulnerability, but also the amount of work that you've done like within yourself to be able to come to the point of seeing that and being able to laugh it off because I'm sure there were moments where it felt like the world was against you or why is it so hard especially graduating into a recession and just coming to the other side of that and being able to find fun in life or um, accept those opportunities that are beneath you with an open mind 
trusting that you're going to end up where you're meant to. And that's exactly what you're describing. Like, that's exactly what happened. And that's so inspiring to hear. Um, second thing, this is the question. I'm really curious what made you decide to invest and like why you even did that, because that is not a thought a lot of people that I grew up with have. That's not a conversation that I was around. And it's really interesting that it was on your radar even so early on after college that this is something that you want to do. So I'm wondering where in your life that seed was planting that investing is important and to start thinking about your financial future. So I don't think that it was necessarily investing focused in the beginning, but I was always very aware of money. And I always felt like money was something that was very scarce. So I remember I grew up in a town that was quite affluent and my family was very middle-class. My stepfather was a professor. Um, my mother worked part-time. We weren't a super wealthy family. We drove Saturns and it, it didn't feel like we had any wiggle room in our life. And I remember very specifically my mother being concerned about money. And my stepdad was very conservative in how he managed money. So every time we had a conversation about something or we did something, that was always part of the, the decision making. I will say that I have a brother and he grew up in the same household as me and we went entirely different directions when it came to frugality. So yeah, I'm not sure how much of it I can say. It's certainly a combination of environmental and genetic. And because he was there in the same environment in me and my interpretation of the environment was money scarce, no one's going to save you and you need to make sure you have your financial shit together. I don't think he had the same takeaway as I did. So I think it happened very early. And then I remember, I think I also was very aware of the gift I had gotten at, for a full scholarship. I went to Boston University, well, my University of Miami and then Boston University, both are extremely expensive schools, 50K a year. And I understood how incredibly impactful that would be to my life. And I didn't want to squander it. I was so grateful for that because I knew so many of my friends had loans. And so I think in a weird way, the gravity of that gift, I felt a responsibility to be smart with my money moving forward. And so by the time I got on cruise ships, I've never really been into like luxury stuff or really had the propensity to buy a lot of things. So on cruise ships, I started saving money quickly. And then I was like, okay, I need to do something smart with this. And then that's how I got into investing. And I remember reading some investing books while I was on the cruise ship, wanting to get into real estate investing, and then just not being overwhelmed with what path to take and ended up finding um, a financial advisor who actually was a friend of mine at the time. You know, Tess, I ask myself that question all the time, like how much, and I think it's like an age-old question, like how much is nature? How much is nurture? <laughs> because yeah. like in these situations, especially growing up in the same household, it's hard to know what the influence is and why siblings, um, I guess, like have a very different relationship with the world around them and with money and like specifically since that's what we're focusing on today. So that's that's really interesting. And I wonder how much of, I suppose like your parental background 
and those beliefs were brought in. Yeah, the question between nature versus nurture and the difference between using those conversations that you heard that felt really limiting and very scarce, that scarcity mindset as a tool for empowerment so you live differently or as the validation to why this is who you are and you're never going to have more and that like money is for someone else or something else or you have to be born into it. And I'm not sure if you know this story. It's like an analogy. I feel like it's one of the most common ones, but it was about like two brothers who grew up in a family with an alcoholic father. And one of the brothers in his adult life was sober, really successful, great dad, really connected with family life. And the other brother was an alcoholic. And when these two brothers were asked, first the one um, that created his own path and kind of broke the conditioning that he was born into when the interviewer asked him like why are you the way you are he responded because i grew up with an alcoholic and these are the reasons why i don't drink and why i chose to do it differently and then when the other brother was asked why are you the way you are he said because i grew up with an alcoholic and therefore that's all i know so it's really interesting like the influences that I don't think anyone knows yet. Like no researcher can really identify how much of it is nature or nurture to this day. And it's like that age old question, like what makes us make those different decisions? What makes us be the cycle breaker? Because that's what you are. You're the cycle breaker of your family who's broken through that scarcity mindset to create your own wealth. And was it a specific book that inspired you? And like what made you decide to invest it as opposed to just save it? Because saving is, I guess, like how the, um, I don't want like for a lack of a better word or like terminology like rich versus poor saving is like the poor way of investing and like becoming wealthy whereas investing is how rich people actually get wealthy so like what drove that because you could have just saved all the money you made and kept saving until <laughs> you retire totally possible yeah so I just had two really interesting revelations uh personally while you were asking me that. So the first one was to your nature versus nurture question. I remember even being like 10 years old and getting, you know, a small allowance, a couple dollars for the tooth fairy and like hiding it. And my brother would be like, what can I buy with this? Like even back in the day. So I think that again, to, to your point, nobody really knows the science behind that, but it was early, like really early. So that's the first point. <laughs> um, the, to, the second part of that. I, I was just thinking, I think I had, and my parents got divorced when I was really early. My mother and my stepdad had a very scarcity, very conservative mindset when it came to money. My stepdad didn't invest in much at all. He was invested very, very conservatively. My father did not, and he spent a lot of money on really nice things, I was always under the impression that he was very wealthy. He had Louis Vuitton stuff. They went on fancy trips. They always talking about flying first class. I thought they were very wealthy. Fast forward to now, a few months ago, my father asked me for money to help pay for their mortgage. And now my mother, my stepdad has passed recently, but my mother has plenty of money for retirement and still feels like she doesn't have enough. So I think that the combination of these two factors, seeing what I thought was somebody very wealthy, I felt like to be successful, I had to be wealthy and I had to be smart and conservative. So I think the combination of those things is why 
I ended up investing because I knew I wanted to make money, not just hoard it. So you had yeah. that example growing up. And even though you didn't know like um, the ins and outs of like how your dad was actually getting his money and what where he was getting it to pay for all these nice things, it was on your radar really young because you did see that contrast between that like scarcity mindset and the saving and someone who appears to have a lot of money spending it on like luxury items. Yeah. And I think that my, you know, I remember very distinctly, like my mom and my stepdad had Saturns, $15,000 Saturns. You could buy them new back then, $15,000. Crazy. My father had a Mercedes Benz, an AMG Mercedes Benz, like really nice Mercedes. And to get real personal, definitely wasn't, I wasn't his favorite person. And I think that I really wanted to be successful to prove to him that I was worthy of his love. And so I remember very early in my 20s being like, I'm going to make a lot of money and show this asshole that I matter. And like thinking about like buying nice cars and like showing up at his house with a Ferrari. Like I daydream about that. And be like, peace. <laughs> yeah, right. Like I love that. And be like, look, I have your Ferrari Enzo now. Is this what you wanted? Like, you know, I wanted to like show him that I was worthy. And so yeah. I think that the contrast and, and he always, you know, didn't talk well about my mother. Now we're getting into some therapy stuff here. But basically, like, I think the combination of me wanting to be accepted by my father by making a lot of money and being terrified of losing money is how I ended yeah. up getting down the investing path so early because I wanted to figure it out right away. I didn't want to wait. Yeah, I'm really loving that you're bringing up um, these more, I guess, like complex issues or not issues, but complex components, like you're saying the therapy work, but it's all intertwined because oh, I yeah. can, I can see, or like, I can imagine even, well, first let me ask this before I share what I'm thinking. How do you feel around money today? Cause you mentioned that you had back then, um, like this fear of not wanting to lose it, which is in direct contrast of also deciding to grow it because there's inherent risk involved in investing. So how do you feel around holding money, investing money and spending money today? Like viscerally. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, 100%. So I would say up until very recently, I didn't spend money at all on anything. And even before my stepdad passed away, he said, you need to enjoy your life and spend some of your money. <laughs> he was felt very strongly about that. And so I think over the last two years or so, I finally got into a place where I'm more comfortable to spend money. But I see people that have way less money than I do. And they're easy. It's not an issue for that. Some people need to not be spending that money. That's a different conversation. But yeah, it's definitely been a journey. I think that we would all be remiss not to make sure we understand what our relationship is with money before we start trying to go down a financial path because it's so important and everyone's journey is different. And for some people like me, I'm going to need a budget to actually budget out fund money or else I'm going to save it all because I'm afraid. I'm less afraid now, you know, now I've, I've grown my net worth significantly and and I'm starting to unravel that, but it's definitely a journey. And I definitely still feel that way about certain purchases. So it's it's an evolving process. And then I think when I work with clients, it's all over the map. Some people have the opposite problem. Like they feel like they have to spend money because it makes them feel better. And there's a lot of shame around that. And it's not shame. Like they, a lot of them had something really bad that happened to them 
it's totally reasonable to have some kind of reaction and their reaction happened to be spending. And then there's more shame around the spending and then it's a cycle. And so we have to give ourselves grace for whatever journey we've been on. And a lot of that journey is tied to our financial habits. Yeah. Thank you seriously, sincerely for sharing that because it can be hard to admit that it's an ever evolving journey for someone who teaches this stuff. And I feel the same way in my business where, you know, it's like you're teaching certain things and yet I'm practicing them constantly. You know, like I'm not always feeling good. Things aren't always working out. And yet how to get back to that baseline where you still feel secure and grounded with your money, with your life, even if things don't go according to plan or even if things aren't working out the way you had hoped or whatever the case is. And the feeling around money, like how many stories do we know of like people winning the lottery and then losing it all? Yeah. And that all comes down to the relationship you have with money and whether you know how to spend it, whether you know how to budget. And another thing I love that you identified was how it works for you, specifically for you, that you need a budget or else you might not spend it, whereas someone else might need a budget or else they'll, they'll overspend. Or other people may just need a budget for whatever reason, just to have that peace of mind that there is that security and that they will be able to support themselves and like pay for their bills without worrying and really start to build intimacy with their wealth and their money on how it can support them in their life for their whole life instead of just um, raising your net worth because that's something that people are talking about online now or that's something that you know you should be doing but actually really cultivating that intimacy with your money and noticing those patterns of when am I overspending when am I underspending and can I have compassion and notice it without judging myself yeah absolutely and that's usually the first step I mean even if you are financially secure regardless of where you are or you're in a lot of debt, tracking your spending is the first thing you need to do to figure out if you're going to invest. And for a lot of people, there's so much fear in that. Just acknowledging their money situation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people I know that are actually doing fine. And they told me, Tess, I was super afraid to start your program because I didn't want to look at my accounts because I was afraid. And like, what a concept. So many people feel that way. And then they feel stupid because they're like, I'm so stupid because I'm afraid to look at my own money. And you're not stupid. That's actually a very common problem. So I do think there's so much to impact when it comes to money mindset. And so everything I do in my workshops or my program, we always start with no judgment and, and saying things like, you're going to have questions. Everyone has the same questions. You're going to have weird things come up that you're going to have shame around and you shouldn't because wherever you are today is the result of whatever life path you were on. And now you're here and you're changing it. So you've already done the work. If you're on my email list or you're attending a workshop, you clearly have You've taken a step in the right direction to take control of your finances. So if there's fear around it, that's okay. That's reasonable for a lot of people to be afraid. How funny that the very things we resist are actually the things that we need to lean into more. And like you said, like looking at your finances for the people that are actually thriving, still having a fear of looking at them. And then you finally sit down and like takes you 10 minutes and you're like, oh, snap, I'm thriving. Like, I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah. I'm good to yeah. go. Why was I why was I spending 10 years worrying and like feeling anxious about it if all I needed was 10 minutes to just 
without judgment, with compassion, just have a look and get curious without, you know, building the story around what it could be without actually knowing what it is like that. I guess like that separation between like expectation and reality. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You mentioned fear and I'm curious if you're willing to share your personal story of moving from your financial advisor and what happened there to going off and building your own net worth your way and now teaching it to others. And you can expand on those details. I kept it a bit vague. (laughs) Sure. Yes. So back to our story. Once I got off cruise ships, I had some money to invest. I did invest in a small rental property in Tampa around that time. And which my stepfather was not happy with. It was way out of his conservative comfort zone. So that was interesting. And then I had some other money that I wanted to invest in the stock market. I didn't know how. I had a friend at the time who was a financial advisor and I gave her my money to invest. I never totally trusted anyone with all, like the idea of putting all my money into one account with one person always made me a little bit nervous. So I always kept some in my own accounts. But after I would say it was a while, it was maybe five years later that I started to pay more attention to what I was investing in. And and some of that came when I finally got a 401k, which was later in life because I worked for a really small company that didn't really offer those employee benefits until I was 27. And so at that point, I got a 401k, had to select my own investments. And so I did a ton of research on them. And I figured out that it is in your best interest to select investments with low fees so that you can keep more of your money. And that a lot of times higher fee investments don't really benefit you as far as an increase in return. So once I figured that out, I started going through the accounts that she had been managing. And right away, I had a lot of questions and concerns. I was in maybe 30 different funds in my account, which for those of you that have no idea what what's normal or appropriate for an investment account, having 30 different index funds or mutual funds in an account is completely unnecessary. A lot of those funds are funds that she got commission off of for putting my account. A lot of them were duplicate funds that were based. What that means is basically they were investing in the similar, almost exactly similar investment structure, but different funds that cost different amounts. The other big thing that ended up costing me a lot of money was I had asked her what additional investment strategies I could do because I was very motivated and I wanted to make sure I was making my money work for me. And she ended up suggesting an annuity to me, which later I found out was a better fit for somebody in their 60s. And most of the financial advisors that I trust now that I've shown that annuity to feel like that's pretty criminal, like clearly not in my best interest. And she also received commission off that. I say all this with acknowledging the fact that she is a good, well-intentioned person. I truly believe that the way that they train their financial advisors at this institution is not good. They don't train in the best interest of the client. And I think however they train them, she genuinely believed that what she was doing for me was valuable. Unfortunately, I now know enough to know that it wasn't. And the amount I paid in fees and into this annuity and opportunity loss was at least 80000 plus dollars. So 
that's a lot of money. It was it was a weird situation because I didn't realize I had really lost it until I went back and started doing the math, which don't do that. It's really sad. If you're working with a financial advisor and you want to start managing your own investments to get rid of fees, don't go back and like torture yourself by figuring out how much you've already paid. Like it's sad. It's super sad. Don't do it. Just move forward. Um, but you know, that was really frustrating for me. And so I had some pretty candid conversations with her and I challenged her on some things and I just wasn't getting answers that I wanted. So I ended up moving my money out. And I will say I had a ton of fear around doing that. Even though I had read a ton of investment books, I felt very comfortable intellectually with what I was going to invest in. I was going to create a simple index fund portfolio. An index fund is just a very simple fund that holds a group of stocks that has a low fee and that is a great way to diversify your investments. That's a simplified version of what an index fund is. But, you know, I had a very good plan of what I was going to invest in and I was still very nervous. And I even knew that the performance should be comparable, if not higher than what my advisor was doing because I was paying so much in fees, upwards of 2%. And I was still nervous about it. So it took me a while to, to finally cut things over, but I'm so glad I did. And I've learned a lot since then. I've changed some of my strategies since then. The thing that I wish more people understood is that no one really knows what's going to happen with the stock market. So you don't have to have complex investments to invest in diversified funds and get the average return of the stock market, which historically is 10%, which is a great return. Uh, probably after inflation, you would want to consider it to be more than like 7%, but that's a great return on your money. So I think that back to, to your point about fear, it is scary, but it's less scary when you start to understand how the stock market works and that there's no perfect investment strategy, but there's really simple ways to invest your money that will probably give you the average return of the stock market. And then you can kind of leave it alone. So that's an oversimplification, but the one thing that people need to understand is it sounds really complicated because there's a lot of financial jargon and there's a lot of fear built in to investing language that you can't do it on your own and you're not smart enough, especially when it comes to how the media speaks to women about investing, which is a whole nother conversation. At the end of the day, it's not that hard, but it's money and it's scary because you know, you have the potential to lose it and at some point, but the stock market historically has always gone up. So once you learn those things, it gets much less scary. For sure. It does sound to me from what you shared that there was a bit of hesitation, though, like despite feeling really in, like really knowledgeable about what you could do, applying what you knew wasn't as easy as knowing it like in your brain, in your yeah, like cognitive 100%, brain. A hundred percent. And actually, so in the Money Confident program, which is my beginner investing program for women, I have at the end of it, most people have a one-on-one -on -one call with me and like 90% of the time they have their full plan. They know exactly what they're going to do. And then they're just like, okay, so do I, I just buy it now. Right. And I'm like, yeah, you got it. <laughs> Click the button. <laughs> Click the button. You're good. But yeah, it's scary. It's scary. Cause it just, and it's so funny. Like everyone that has come back to me that has done that, they're always laughing. Cause they're like, that is the most anticlimactic moments ever like you buy the so investment funny. and you like feel like your money's just gonna disappear <laughs> and it's fine <laughs> so it's interesting yeah 
And it's fine when you just leave it there because the market's always going to be changing. So like you can decide like when to cash it out. Yeah, exactly. Essentially. And that's, that's what I spend a lot of time educating on if you're listening to this and you don't understand investing and the risk. The basic premise of, of simplified investing is that over time, the stock market has always gone up. So if you invest for the long term, you're very likely going to have a positive return on your money. As I mentioned before, the average return of the stock market is 10%. Given the change in the economy and inflation, you could assume 7% moving forward. That'd be a conservative estimate. But what's important to understand is that every year it isn't 7%. Some years it's 20% down, other years it's 15% up. And just like life or any other journey that you're on, it's not linear. And so once you understand that and you look at a little bit of the historical data, you don't need to be a data scientist to understand this, but basically it's that graph that you've seen a thousand times in any personal development thing that says the journey is peaks and valleys. And that's exactly what the stock market does. So once you understand that and you're investing money that you don't need in the next three to five years, you're going to have way less anxiety about it. And you're not going to be checking it every day because you're not trying to use that money. I think what gets people in trouble is when they start to invest money that they need for to buy a house or a car or some short-term bigger purchase. If you need money in the next three to five years, don't invest in the stock market. But if you're okay with understanding that there's a chance that that, that value of money could go down, then you should invest it because over time, you're very likely to get a positive return. And I believe around the 20 year mark when you've been invested, based on the historical returns of the stock market, the likelihood that your return in the stock market is negative after 20 years of investing is like 0.001%. It's highly unlikely. And if you do lose all your money in the stock market, it means that our economy has collapsed and we have solar flares or zombies or something way worse than you yeah. losing your money in the stock market. So I think that's important, but that's a real fear and it's a reasonable fear because people don't know. They haven't been taught. And this is one of those things that should be taught in school, but we were too busy learning intro to jazz, which was a great class, but not helpful <laughs> for life. Oh yeah. Don't even get me started on that one. I think that's like a separate episode altogether. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. The things that were not taught in school that actually would make life a lot more fun, <laughs> you know, like yeah, a lot more 100%. fun and enjoyable. Um, You mentioned, I just want to backtrack a little bit. I love everything that you're sharing. And one theme that I'm noticing in like the last couple of minutes of your share with like the technical aspects of investing, some of your clients feeling fear once they have like their plan laid out to actually purchase. And then the fear you must have felt that was like the tipping point for you with all of the money, like almost 80 grand you mentioned, like that's huge. You know, that is a huge amount of money for most people and probably not even the salary, an annual salary that a lot of people make in America, especially. I can't speak for other countries and obviously industry dependent. There's a nuance. So let's not get hung up on the nuance. But can you identify like what motivated you to use this huge, huge loss as an opportunity to apply what you've been learning? Because you had to learn a certain amount about money to even know what questions to ask your financial advisor because you easily also could have added this to your story completely given up kind of like we talked about like the nature versus nurture at the beginning of this conversation not everyone uses these i guess failures as society likes to call them quote unquote as 
opportunities to empower yourself and to create change, but the opposite. Add it to their yeah. story. They're stupid. They should have known better. They'll never do it again. And even that inner dialogue is very real. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So there's two very specific motivations I had for turning this into something more productive. The first was that the way I lost that $80,000, a good chunk of it was an annuity that I won't, technically I didn't lose it, but the opportunity loss of what that money would be worth if I had invested it over 30 years is actually a lot more than $80,000, but that's a separate issue. A lot of it was just fees over time, over seven years of investing my money with this person that was taking 2% Seven fees. years. I think it was seven. Oh. I'd have to go back and check, but it was a while. That's, that's so, a long-term relationship. Yeah. And fees are, maybe it was more like five years. Fees are insidious because you don't know that it's coming out of your account. There's been a lot of legislation that's been tried to push through to make it more transparent. But most of the time when you're working with a financial advisor, or if you have a 401k, you're getting a percentage of your money taken out and you don't see that transaction. So it's very reasonable. And this is, and I try to make sure that everybody understands this. Like there should be no shame. If you didn't realize that was happening, like most people have no idea that their 401k has fees. The average person will spend $138,000 in fees in their 401k over their lifetime. And they'll never have a clue that their retirement is $100,000 less than it could have been if they learned how to manage their fees. But no one teaches you this. And the fees are insidious because they're just taken out and you don't really see that. So that was one thing that I just thought was such a mind-blowing moment for me that upset me so much that I just felt very compelled to make sure everybody knew, probably to an annoying degree at first, which is why I ended up starting a business because my poor friends were getting my unsolicited fee rants. And so I decided to turn that into a business to help people that did want that information. So that was the first motivation was really just the observation that those fees are insidious and they're not that hard to reduce significantly. So it's that that premise is what my program and my business was based off and the number one motivator. And then the second piece was very honestly, my stepdad passed away about a year and a half ago and I had so much grief and I just needed to do something productive with it. And so the time between when I realized all that, all of the money that I had lost or in the opportunity I lost working with that financial advisor and when he passed away was only a few years. And I had already decided that I wanted to start a business and do something. So I was in hospice with him. He was at home hospice and I was bored in his room for a long time hanging out. And I had a lot of time to think in that, that concept just coming back and back. And then when he finally passed away, it just seemed like a good way to direct my energy. Now in full transparency, I should have spent more time feeling my feelings and not building a business to deal with my grief. That's not a recommended approach. However, <laughs> it's what happened. And then later, transparently, I had to deal with my grief because I'd spent all my energy on this business and then realized I never processed that. That's another story. But uh, So I you're those... human. Yes, exactly. So you're human. Um, you so... did something that a human would do. No shame in that. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It worked well. I mean, it was like great outcome from a business perspective. But uh, 
yeah, I, I paid for that a yeah. little bit later, but it, you know, it all happens as it should. And he always used to say life comes to you, whether you like it or not. So that's what happened. And now I have a business and I've processed some of my grief and it's very rewarding. I started it thinking it would be helpful and I am continuing it with an incredible amount of motivation and excitement and passion and sadness for people that have not gotten this education and have been through something really tragic. And unfortunately, a lot of the clients I work with, something happened to them that triggered them to take control of their finances. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's not great. So, you know, I thought it was needed. And now that I'm doing this work, it's more needed than I can ever imagine. And it, and the other reason is because for a lot of women in particular, there's shame even around wanting to be wealthy. Like that's a shameful, like greedy thing to have money when right now where we are in the world, women need all the money we can get. We need money so that we can enjoy our lives with people we care about. We need money so we can donate to causes that matter to us. We need money so that we can make an impact. That's what this is all about. Well, building wealth is not so you can go home and like count your dollar bills and buy your Ferrari Enzo's and drive up in front of your father's house and like show it off. Like that's not the point. The point <laughs> but is- But that was the <laughs> initial motivator and that's okay. <laughs> that, as just hypothetically, as, yeah. Yeah. as an example, um, you know, fingers, that's not the point. Little figures up in the air. <laughs> exactly. Yes. A hundred percent. That was definitely the vibe. Um, that's not what it's about. That's what it was about for me in the beginning. And now it's about optionality, flexibility, freedom, impact, words that are important and matter and, and can give your life purpose. Yeah. If it's okay with you, I'd like to comment something about the grief that I think can be helpful for listeners and maybe even yourself. Sure. Firstly, I'm really sorry for your loss. It sounds like the connection that you had, whether it was, you know, in the moment or after the fact, really shook you. And I have complete, yeah, like I just feel for you and I'm so sorry for your loss. And as far as the not being ashamed of how you might have dealt with your grief, and this is for anyone who may have experienced a big loss at some point in their life or maybe will in the future sometimes when we when the grief is too much to hold what we need to do is throw ourselves into a project or work and that's just how our body balances itself out so we can continue to survive because sometimes it's too much to hold and that in itself you know i hope can be a perspective to help take some of that stigma and shame away when we reflect on maybe not having felt our feelings or why it's hard to feel our feelings. Sometimes it's too much. And the only way our systems know how to process that is by taking action and throwing ourselves into our work. So it sounds like you had a really um, impactful healing journey as well, being able to come back to it when it was a little bit easier to hold and actually sit with it later on and that's such a beautiful thing that you shared with myself and the listeners because you absolutely had no obligation to do that so i want to just acknowledge you for that and it is the way we find freedom yeah i thank you i appreciate <clears throat> that a lot i i do remember this is great advice that what you're sharing is is not just great advice but great perspective not just for people that are grieving, but also people that are trying to support people that are grieving because 
I had a lot of comments from close friends that were critical in terms of my dealing with the grief. And that was really frustrating because it almost made me feel like I didn't care. Like they felt like I didn't care and that couldn't be further from the truth. So I think that's an incredibly powerful observation. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope it didn't cross anything. I hope it wasn't too no, much. Not it at all. Right no, on point. It's, help, it's helpful to hear yeah. because, you know, it's just, it's always helpful to hear that that's not, that's something common or something part of the human experience, right? We all deal with yeah. things different ways. Exactly. Part of the human experience and also the social conditioning of like what a person who is grieving should look like or what a wealthy person should look like. So I think this is a good like transition point. Um, you've mentioned how maybe the media talks about money and women. I'd love to hear your perspective and your knowledge about that and also about privilege and wealth. Sure. So I'll start with money in the media and also and all financial. The around that. Yeah, that's like a so load many. Loaded questions. Load of questions. Yeah. So here, like three points. Where, <laughs> yeah. Where my brain went first was I saw this incredibly impactful statistic maybe about a year ago. And it and I don't quote me on the exact numbers here, but it was basically said that. 90% of financial content created for women is about saving money, coupon clipping, lowering spending. And it's almost the opposite for men, like more investing content is directed mm. towards men. So that's the first thing that I think is really important for us to understand. And historically, a lot of men have always taken care of the investments and and the finances. And a lot of times women take care of the budget, but men take care of the finances. So it's not all in one camp, um, but that is common. So that's the first thing that I'll say is that a lot of the messaging that you've gotten is around, you should be saving and you're not wealthy because you spend money on pumpkin spice lattes or you spend money on <laughs> what, you know, like your Lululemon yoga pants. And that's why you're broke, which is absolutely bullshit like there is yeah. there is no reason why you shouldn't enjoy your life within reason and spend some money on things that bring you joy and more importantly experiences right like I know people in the financial creator community that are wonderful people that have admitted shame in not going with their friends to go get a coffee because they didn't want to spend the money when they had enough money to spend on it or they had a little bit of debt and that's just not right. Like the value and the ROI of going with your friends and getting a coffee and having that social experience and having some laughs is pretty high. Now that's mental not health, to say like yes, exactly. for your mental health and for your sanity and to like be to feel like you're you belong to something, you're a part of something, which is outweighs yeah. the cost of a $5 yes. coffee. <laughs> I yeah. just needed to One... interject and say that. <laughs> yes, no, well, well said. And so that's the transition here that I'm trying to get at is there's a lot of all or nothing. There's a lot of old financial advice or when financial coaching became a thing like Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman, they did a lot of great things for financial literacy and education. What they did not do a great job of is understanding the human experience and shame. And so there are a lot of people that did had so much shame that, you know, they were told like, you shouldn't spend a dollar on anything that you don't enjoy until you're a hundred percent debt-free and your house is paid off. Mm. 
which is absolutely ridiculous and actually not your best interest financially in a lot of cases. So I think that there's a lot to unpack there and I'll stop there when it comes to saving and spending and money for and messaging towards women when it comes to finances. I mean, it applies to, to regardless of how you identify that there's a lot of shame around spending. And usually that's not the problem, especially because you can only save so much money. Like at the end of the day, you can grow your income. Your income has is limitless to some degree, depending on where you come. And then we get into privilege, but your spending, you can only cut your spending so much. So that's some of the messaging and, and things that you might've heard subconsciously that can impact how you spend money and how you think about money. And then when it comes to privilege, I mean, we simply just don't Sorry. all start. Oh, I'd love yeah. to interject before we go into privilege. I'd like yeah. to interject um, just a thought as you were speaking that came to my mind is also what you observed in your own household when it came to money, but not what we talked about in the beginning of the language around money, but specifically what your mother did with money and the type of job she had and your lineage and your great your grandmother, your great grandmother and the female line because all of that gets passed down generationally in an unconscious way. And it's really helpful to identify it and unpack it. And that's like some of the things that we do in my work is really looking at the lineage to see what beliefs are kind of running us today. And I know specifically, like for me, which I'd like to share as well, because um, I know that there's a lot of like first generation, first and second generation women that follow me, some women that were adopted into families, which like is loaded in itself when it comes to how you interact with money. And I'm a first generation American, you know, my parents immigrated. So the women in my lineage growing up in Poland, both of my grandmas, like my grandparents were alive during World War II. You know, they were really young, but they lived through a war and Poland is really close to Germany, you know, and one of my grandmas has, or to both of them actually, um, have stories of like interacting with the Nazis and like what life looked like for women then when men were off to war, like all of the social impact during that time, which, you know, seems so far away because we haven't normalized talking about it and we haven't normalized in the Western culture connection to our lineage. Like it's normalized in the Eastern culture, but actually our history is so important to how we are wired today and the choices that we make and how we feel. And especially when it comes to money and women. And I'd like to just make another point as well, because I've been observing and this might be loaded so we'll see how we go but i've been observing this really like divisive perspective on like what even feminism is or like women's empowerment and there's truth in that you have innate power and when you learn to step into your self-worth and your confidence right confidence in money confidence in who you are confidence in your intellect and capability you will have less limitations around you because you will be you will be making different choices you will be moving through the world differently and yet there is the systemic component that no matter how confident you are and how much like inner work and healing you've done and owned your shit there's systems around us that don't distribute power equally and limit women and other minority groups 
in society, especially in the Western world, or not even especially in the Western world, but in the Eastern world, where there's so many countries where women can't even vote yet, they can't drive, they can't show their hair, and it's not a choice. And I know it's like a loaded entry into this conversation because people feel really heated about it. And I've noticed like arguments going on on social media, none that I was ever a part of, but just observing and like this belief that like feminism is bad or like this misunderstanding of what it is. And then misunderstanding of like the good money can do when it's in a woman's hand or when it's in a minority group's hand. And like, like you mentioned, the impact you can have for yourself, for others, for your family. And like, really, it's, I think, at the core essence, it's about the ability to distribute power. And unfortunately, power is connected to money. Yeah, that was a lot. (laughs) Sorry, I just have to No, I was like, this could be helpful. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a lot. I mean, we could spend hours on this. So I'll keep my perspective short in that at the end of the day, depending on where you came from, your race, where you live, what your parents look like, what city you were brought up in, how you identify, all of those things. And the intersection of all of those things can create such a challenge for you to move through the world. And when it comes to finances, there's a lot of rhetoric around like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But for some people, their boots are in concrete. And that's where they're starting. And so I think that everyone starts from a different place. And I am very transparent about that on social media, that I started from a middle-class family. I was one of the few people I know that went to university and didn't have debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is just incredible amounts of privilege right there. Did I work hard for it? Yes. Like, have I worked really hard the last 10 years? Of course. But there was just so many opportunities afforded to me that other people won't get. So... You can't talk about finances without talking about privilege. They're directly intertwined in so many ways. And so I think that, you know, we could go on and on about just that topic in general. But I think at the end of the day, it's the acknowledgement that we are not all starting from the same place. And it's, you know, oversimplified. Yeah. And that's the reality. So now what can we do about it? Right. And one of those steps is taking control of your own financial education and being the, I guess, like even cycle breaker in your family who jumpstarts that because someone has to do it. Someone has to choose to do it differently. Exactly. Yep. Can I ask how old you were when you started investing? I think this could be really helpful. 20, well, 25, 24. I bought my first rental property when I was 24, I believe. Mm. 20, yeah, 24, I think. Which is early, like really early. Like a lot of people don't start investing till their 30s and they all think they're behind. If you're starting in your 30s, you have another 30 years until you reach retirement, you're going to be okay. So by the way, that is extraordinarily early and very uncommon. And a lot of that was fear-based. No one's ever going to take care of me and I need to take care of myself. Like trauma that like yeah. led me to invest that early. So just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. My next question was going to be, and what's the age that most of the women that you work with are because it does vary. And like, even if you're 60, like you can still invest. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think most of them are in their thirties and forties, a couple in their fifties. There's a couple outliers in their fifties, a couple in their twenties, but mostly it's thirties and, and early forties. And I think that 
this generation, upcoming generation that's coming out of college now is in a cool spot. There is more data that more young women are investing, which is awesome. I think one of the benefits of social media, there's a lot of drawbacks, but also a lot of information being shared. And so I do know a lot more young women that are paying more attention to their 401ks and investing earlier, which is awesome to see. So I do think we're headed in the right direction in a lot of ways, but a lot of people are in their thirties and either they have investments and have no idea what are in them or they haven't started. And either way, it's okay. When you wait until your fifties, it's trickier. It's a lot trickier. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't gotten started, like the earlier you start, the easier it's going to be. But not impossible. And totally, it's never impossible. Yeah, totally possible, whatever age you are, to start taking control of your finances and educating yourself. You may not have the same return if you started 30 years earlier, but at the end of the day, the best time to start is now instead of dwelling on the present. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah. And especially, yeah, yeah, it's all day. And I, I would agree with that. And I would also say, even if you're in a strong financial position, but your partner is managing your finances, now would also be a great time to learn that because I've had a fair amount of women that I've worked with that their partner has gotten sick or they got divorced or something happened and they didn't understand where any of their money was. And the last thing that you want when you're going through something that's so emotionally, psychologically and physically challenging is to add on the stress of trying to figure out what you're invested in and what money you have. So if somebody else is managing your finances and you're confident that it's all going well, I tell people all the time, you you need to be educated. And I get a lot of pushback on that because people will say like, oh, my partner or husband or whatever, like he handles that. Like, that's fine. I'm not saying not to trust him, but I am saying that you never know what could happen. And there's too many stories of people being in those tricky situations. And I don't want that for anybody. Like if, if your husband is sick and dying, like you shouldn't be worrying about your money at that time. It's not a good time to learn how to invest your money. What it sounds like to me um, with everything you just described is it's not so much about who's managing your money. It's more about do you know what's happening with your money? Because if you didn't educate yourself, say people do want a financial advisor, great. But if you know nothing about investing, you're never going to know what questions to ask to even step in and interject. Like, let's say in the example that you gave with um, a spouse managing the finances and like something tragic happening, as long as you have access and education about it and then you can step in and regain that control. But if you know nothing and you're completely putting your trust into someone else, then it could get tricky. And I don't want to say it's always going to end badly, but it's definitely um, really good for self-esteem and confidence to know where your money is going and how to look after it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. Some people might not want to manage their own money, and that's completely fine. But you should understand how much you're paying your financial advisor and high level what they're doing. Uh, That's table stakes. So yeah, regardless of what's going on, you need to learn the basics. And that's like in my program, some people, they end up going with a robo advisor or they get a new financial advisor that actually takes the time to educate them and they know what questions to ask and they start that relationship from a place of power. And that's great. I don't think everybody needs to manage their own investments, but if you want to learn, you are completely capable. For sure. I'd love for you to share a little bit about what you're and you don't need to go into the details but you have a full-time corporate job 
and you started Wealth with Tess, your own business. And you travel quite a bit and it looks like you're adventuring and you're really doing your best to distribute your energy and time into like incorporating things that actually fulfill you and aren't focused solely around work, but like having a well-rounded life. And it's a work in progress for everyone, I'm sure. And for myself included, and I teach this, but it's a constant like coming back to basics, like you said in the beginning. One, what do you do for work? Because I know you're not a financial advisor or work in finance. So it's really unique that you went down this path. Sure. So my day job is working for a marketing agency and I'm the VP of operations. So I oversee everything from merger and acquisition integration to revenue operations, business analytics, all kind, anything operational that helps drive the business forward. Thank you for that. I feel like <laughs> we don't even need to expand on that. I just wanted you to name it because I think there's also that misconception or like someone can assume, oh, well, Tess must have studied finance or something like that. And it's like, well, actually, you educated yourself and your day job has nothing to do with this. And you're really successful in both of those categories or both of the professions that you've chosen. Yeah, I think that I won't work in my corporate job forever, um, but I like my job. And I think there is a lot of interesting there's a lot of polarization in general in our world today, right? And so right now the polarization with working is like ditch your nine to five, start your own business. And that's great for some people. I personally don't love the idea of going all in on a business that's bringing me joy and that is very rewarding and putting so much pressure on myself to replace my nine to five income. That doesn't seem like a good strategy for me. So this year when I goal set, I set some more reasonable goals, knowing that I still work full time, knowing that I can definitely grow this business. But in order to protect my sanity and my health, that I'm going to have to sacrifice some growth of the business if I'm going to keep my nine to five, can't have it all. So I think that that decision is sitting really well with me because when I started the business, I felt like I had an invisible pressure from no one in particular from society, I suppose, to make my business as successful as possible so I could leave my nine to five. And the more I've gotten into this, the more I've met other people similar to me that all had that same feeling. And now we're all kind of getting together and we're like, you don't really have to do that. Like I like making income from my business and having a nine to five. And someday I'd love to take my business full time, but not right now. And I'm fortunate enough to work for a good company with good people. So if you're in a toxic environment, that's a different conversation. But my work is very supportive of my my business, which is really cool. So I'm very grateful for that. And I won't do it forever, but for now it's working for me. And I don't think there's a right answer to the nine to five or business debate. And I think some people should not start a business. It's not for everybody. And totally. that is perfectly fine. If you don't yeah. want to be an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur needs to stop being a stamp of ultimate success in yeah. our world. There are a lot of amazing, if you find a business that's doing something great or a great culture, that's going to make you a better person. And you work with that business in a great culture, that's making you a better person, teaching you things you're growing. Like there is nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. And for me, that's a sign of like true and powerful leadership to not 
fall into that pressure of having to choose whether you're going to be full-time in your business or full-time in a job, but really being gentle with yourself and allowing those things to coexist. And if I'm honest, like from a business owner's perspective, this is the hardest thing I've ever freaking done, way harder than my job before I... I didn't even leave it. The pandemic started and my industry collapsed, which I got kind of forced my hand and I'm grateful for it, but it's definitely not for everyone. And you can find such a fulfilling career that respects you and acknowledges you and like gives you a semblance of the freedom that would make you feel, I guess, like you have more room to live where your life isn't centered around only work. And I invite any listener who resonates with that to consider it. You know, maybe you're at a crossroads in your career and your job. And the only answer isn't to start a business and be an entrepreneur, rather getting creative with different career choices for you and how that can look differently. So you are happy. And that's like another stigma. It's almost around work. It's like, I'll be happy when I retire or I'll, I'll enjoy my life when I retire. But actually, we live in such a privileged time where we can be content with our work. We can even be fulfilled and happy. Dare I say it, you know, it's like you don't need to be miserable and waking up exhausted all the time and just feeling like you're always like holding your head above water, just like trying to stay afloat because your everyday environment that you walk into is just so draining. And yeah, I mean, a lot of other things go into that is getting clarity around your purpose and boundaries and things like that. But the more women can utilize their voice in these environments, that's when we can see great change in our satisfaction and work and in our money and really stand behind that embodied confidence to create the changes we want to see. So just well want said. to add that. Yeah. I love that. Well said. Thank you. Last question. And then I'll let you go. I know it's nighttime in the U.S. right now. So I don't want to no worry. I'm, I'm so grateful you're here and I'm really mindful of your time as well. Where and when do you feel most like yourself? This will be a good place to close. I feel most like myself. Two things came to mind when you asked me that. The first was in nature. I love spending time hiking and I get a lot of clarity, a lot of calm and a lot of peace being part of nature. And I think that's mostly just just the realization that we are just a small cog in some beautiful majestic universal wheel and it always makes me feel a little bit better and a little bit less less anxious about whatever thing I'm worried about um just kind of gives me some existential perspective so I'd say nature first and then the second one would be when I am talking to someone and I'm able to not just give them advice, but empower them and make them feel more confident to do what I know they can already do. And my program includes online videos. And then I do some small one-on-one coaching as part of that, but that or the small group coaching, like I just love helping people and seeing the light bulbs go off. And then, you know, when they share that they they've done something they thought they couldn't do, it's, it's pretty awesome. So I, I enjoy that part the most. Sounds like you found yourself in the right professions, plural. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tess. I think there was so much value in this conversation, and it's going to go a long way to so many women and just humans around the world. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. 
before you click stop on this episode, I have one last invitation for you. There was something Tess and I didn't hit on that I think is so important when growing your wealth and changing your relationship with money. Life is all about intention and attention. What is your intention and where is your attention going? Money isn't the goal. Money is the tool to help you get to the goal. I see people's relationships to money similar to their relationships with time. Many are unsure of what exactly they would spend their money on if they had more of it. Just like many aren't specifically clear on what they would spend their time doing if they had more of it. In theory, we all have an idea of what we would do with our time and what we would spend our money on, but having a vague idea is not the same thing as being specific. Specificity helps create intention and refocus your attention so that you can actually realize your goals. Here's a question to consider today. One that I encourage you to actually sit down for and take the time to think about and answer. Slowing down enough to actually consider and answer these bigger questions and deeper questions is where the transformations live. What would more money and financial freedom give you? What would you spend it on? Like actually spend it on? What do you deeply desire that money can help you achieve? Here are some examples. With more money, I can invite my whole family on a trip to Bali with me. More money would help me free up my time because I could hire a chef and a cleaner, for example, for my house. With more money, I can serve and impact more people. I can donate to the charities that make a difference. I can buy myself new clothes that inspire me easily and effortlessly without all the stress attached. I would invest in that one growth program or personal development program that I've been interested in. These are just some examples of how being specific with what your end goal of more financial freedom can give you. Allow yourself to dip into pleasure and the possibilities financial freedom can open up for you. Connecting with these desires can be a great motivator to actually take action on some of the things Tess mentioned earlier in our conversation. Clear intent will help you enjoy the journey more instead of focusing solely on the outcome. So if you liked what you heard today, tag Wealth with Tess on Instagram and myself at Expand and Impact in your stories or send us a message telling us how this episode landed for you so that we can keep showing up and creating opportunities to bring people together, inspire, educate, and help you take massive action. And if you know just a single person who would benefit from this episode, make sure to share it with them. We're not meant to do any of this alone, and this is information that we're simply not taught in schools. That's it for this week. Cheers to your health, wealth, and happiness, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Remember, expansive education plus inspired action equals an impactful life. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at expand and impact. <laughs>